the Bible reading, it's my pleasure to bring to you from the Gospel of Luke. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. It's a fabulous thing to do when you have a visiting preacher to give them the hard texts. And these are hard words, aren't they? And I understand this is part of a series that you have on the hard words of Jesus. And that's a good series to have because the Bible does contain many hard words from Jesus. And these words we've just heard read to us are up there with some of the hardest. This is no easy part of Scripture to understand. But before we start thinking about how hard these words are, I first want you to realise that they're not only hard words, they're also, frankly, Strange words, weird words, they're unexpected words. These are not the things you would think that Jesus would say, and in fact you might think he would say precisely the opposite. That is, when Jesus was having his earthly ministry 2,000 years ago uh, in Galilee and in Jerusalem and Judea and those areas, it was clear that he wanted to call people to himself. One of the things he says in the early parts of the Gospels is, follow me, as he calls the disciples, follow me. He draws people to himself. That's his great goal. Well, if that's your great goal, drawing people to yourself as followers, this to me would be, seem to be exactly what you don't do in order to win people to yourself and to your cause. I mean, think about it in any other context. Uh, say you're an employer and you're looking to headhunt someone to come and work for your firm. Uh, what you don't do is go up to them and say, uh, look, I, I'd really love you to be, to be part of our team. The work is hard, the hours are long, and the pay is rubbish. What do you say? What if you're a politician and you want to get elected? Uh, you make it as easy as possible for people to vote for you. Uh, what you don't say is, here is my manifesto, and I want you to ascribe to every single part of it with all of your heart, well, I don't want your vote. Don't vote for me. I, I'm not interested in it. 
No, you say, look, just the bare minimum will do. Just cross the line and tick the box. That's all I care about. But Jesus is not like that. In fact, he's doing what seems to be almost precisely the opposite. He seems to be not trying to build his numbers at this point, but trying to thin them down. Have a look with me at verse 25. You see that this little part of the scripture starts telling us that large crowds were travelling with Jesus. He has a group of people, a large group of people, perhaps large groups of people, large crowds following him and he turns to address them and to explain why many of them cannot follow him trying to cut down the numbers. He goes through uh, these words we've heard read and three times as he outlines these very strict and difficult conditions, he says, if you don't do this thing, you cannot be my disciple, verse 26. And verse 27, you cannot be my disciple. And verse 33, you cannot be my disciples. He says why many people who seek to follow Jesus actually oughtn't. You know, I think if I was Jesus' campaign manager, uh, I would have gone another way. I would have encouraged him to run with the kinds of things that we see him say in, uh, say, for example, Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. He says there, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's a better message. That's how you win people to follow you. Not this one. And yet, those things go together. And Jesus does say these words. And they're hard words. But my hope is today that as we look at them together, we'll come to understand what Jesus is saying and through understanding realise why this is actually how it has to be and how it's actually also fantastic. Turn with me then to the passage. Again, if you don't have the Bibles there, I believe it's printed on your news sheet and there's room on the page opposite if you like to take notes. You can do that. (coughs) Excuse me. Again, it starts off, doesn't it, with these large crowds of people following Jesus and it's very clear in the narrative that he turns to them uh, to give this address, this address that seems to be pointed at one level to thinning down this crowd or at least to showing them what following him really is going to mean. And probably the hardest part of the whole thing is that very first verse there that comes after that, which is verse 26, where Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, Think about the people who are most precious to you, who you care about deeply, who mean the world to you, who are everything in your life. You need to hate them so you can follow me. That's a hard word. Now, we need to understand it uh, correctly because there's something in uh, the nuance of the uh, original language this was in that doesn't quite come through in the English, although, as I'll show you, that doesn't mean that it's not a very, very hard saying. We have the word there, hate. And when we tend to think of the word hate, uh, we think of... Uh, you know, to think bitterly about someone, to despise them and to actually really have negative feelings about them. Uh, 
That, I don't think, is what's captured here when the word hate is being used. In fact, it can't be that because we know that in other places Jesus tells us that we are to be characterised by our love. In fact, the way you'll know a Christian person is by the way that they love other Christians. It'll just stand out. They will love one another and that will mark them as Jesus' disciples. Jesus even says radical things like, you will love your enemies. So he's not talking about a bitter spirit towards someone. But the nuance in this word here, hate here means to love less or to renounce. To love less or to renounce. Now, I always want to be careful at this point for you not to hear that and think, ah, okay, it's, it's not such a challenging thing after all. I actually think in some ways that makes it more challenging. That makes it more challenging. Now, let me explain why I think that makes it more challenging. It makes it more challenging because it's actually quite easy to turn away from something you hate, something you bitterly despise. It's easy to turn away from that. Uh, let me give you a, a sort of trivial example. Think about food. If someone says to you, I want you to renounce Brussels sprouts and commit to pizza, you go, okay, I can do that, no problem. But what about when someone comes to you and says, I want you to renounce chocolate? and commit to pizza. Then you go, ah, now I'm torn. That rips me apart. That's a really hard thing to do. And that's what's going on here. Jesus is saying that his disciples must be prepared to renounce even that which is most precious to them in the same way that they would walk away from something that they hated if that needs to happen. It's, it's a relative term, you see. Uh, you need to hate them compared to the love and commitment you have to me and be prepared, if necessary, to turn away from them in the way that you would turn from something you hated for the sake of following me. But it's harder because you actually love them. You don't hate them. Now, this is really real, you know, for some people uh, and perhaps for some people here too, I don't know. I met a North African woman recently and uh, she had come from a Muslim context. Her husband and her children and extended family were all Muslims uh, and yet she found out about the Lord Jesus and decided that she wanted to become his disciple. But in order to do that in her context, she had to leave her family. Uh, and she did and now lives in Australia uh, making peace with the fact that she may never see them ever again. Uh, that is, she's turned away from them as though she had no interest in them, as though she hated them, that kind of action, although it's heartbreaking because she loves them. But her beliefs can't be tolerated in her old family or in that society. And lots of people make these kinds of choices. And Jesus is not saying, that's good. I, I, I like that families are broken like that. I like that you are ripped apart from the ones you love. No, Jesus is not saying that it's good at that level. But he's saying it may be necessary. It may be necessary to make that decision for some people. And that is the good decision to make in those tough circumstances. Now, that is hard, isn't it? Uh, but just in case you're sitting there thinking, 
Well, uh, thank goodness that in my situation, I don't have to pay that kind of cost. Um, Please understand here, Jesus is not just talking about relationships. Relationships is the example he gives, and the reason he gives that example, I think, is because of all the things that you might have to put in second place for Jesus' sake, relationships are going to be the hardest. But it's not as though Jesus is saying here, uh, if necessary, walk away from your family for my sake, but feel free to hold on to your job. If necessary, uh, put your family in second place, but don't worry about putting your children's education in first place. Now, if necessary, give up everything that you love in terms of those people around you to follow me, but don't give up your aspirations for your social life or the experiences that you want to enjoy. If necessary, walk away from your mother and father and children, but don't give up what makes you feel safe and secure in the world. No, of course he's not saying that, is he? Of course he's not saying that. He's taking the most extreme case of what you might walk away from to indicate that everything has to take second place to following Jesus. It may not come to that, but it might. And if it does, he has to have priority. Whatever the sacrifice, whatever the weight you have to bear, and the language he uses in verse 27, whatever cross you have to carry, even if it's one that leads you to death, you need to be ready to do that to be a disciple of Jesus. So here's something we're learning pretty quickly from these hard words of Jesus. Jesus doesn't want simply lots of disciples. He does want lots of disciples, but he doesn't just want lots of disciples. He wants lots of wholehearted, fully committed disciples. And he doesn't want half-hearted disciples. Jesus is not interested in just scrounging enough votes to get across the line, as it were, like a politician might do. Jesus is not interested in having millions and millions of followers on social media whose greatest effort is kind of half-heartedly clicking on the like button as though that'll do in terms of giving myself to Jesus. No, Jesus doesn't want that. Jesus wants people to give their all. And he says to the crowd, giving your all may necessitate you treating those things that are nearest and dearest to you as though you didn't care about them at all. That's how much I want you to be bonded to me as a disciple. And nothing short of that will do. There's a big cost, isn't it, in following Jesus? A big cost. And, and as the passage goes on, Jesus makes it very clear that those who would follow him must count that cost, must be aware of it. He gives two examples of counting the cost in verses 28 through to 33. The first one in 28 through to 30 is the example of someone building a tower. It's probably meant to mean here like the tower that's part of a house, not a big commercial or industrial tower. And someone who does that will check that they've got enough money to do it before proceeding because if they don't, they'll look like an idiot. They'll have a half-completed structure on the side of their house and everyone will walk by and go, this person is so hopeless at managing their own affairs they didn't even realise that they didn't have enough money to build the tower that they were planning to build. And so for the sake just of feeling the public ridicule, you won't do that, Jesus says, will you? 
Then he takes a, a, a kind of weightier example, the example of a king going to war in verses 31 to 33. And he says, of course, a king who goes to war will similarly count the cost. Uh, that is, the king will look at the size of the army he has at his disposal, the size of the alternate army, and will decide whether or not he has the resources necessary to go and win the war. And if he doesn't, he'll go and sort out terms for peace. And Jesus is saying, just as you would count the costs in these kinds of undertakings, you know, a home-building project, right through to going to war, so too you must count the cost of following me. You must know what that cost is that I'm calling you to give, that this enterprise of following me and being my disciple will involve. And just as for someone who wants to build a tower on the side of their house, what they need to count is, uh, have they got the financial resources for that? And just as a king who wants to go and win a battle or be part of a, a war needs to work out, do I have the human resources to do that? Jesus explains what the cost is to following him. Not money, not troops, but here it is, he says in verse 33, in the same way as these builders and kings who count costs, in the same way, those of you who do not give up Everything you have cannot be my disciples. The cost of building your extension is however many dollars. The cost of winning a war is however many troops. The cost of following Jesus is everything you have. And if you're not going to pay that cost, then you can't be his follower. So it's very clear, isn't it, from what we've read, that Jesus is setting the bar very high and saying being his follower is a difficult thing. As, as one of the um, uh, commentators on this part of Scripture said, the call to be a disciple of Jesus is not the call to an ice cream picnic. It's a high cost. And so the question, I guess, that then kind of comes to us as we read that is, why? Why does it have to cost so much? Why, Jesus, can't you be happy with people who give significantly of themselves and their lives, even if they don't go all the way? Why can't you be happy, Jesus, that there are large crowds of people following you who they're travelling with you, they have presumably left their homes to do that, they're giving you their time, they're giving you their attention, they're on the journey with you. Surely you should take the positive view rather than the negative and say, isn't it great that you've decided to give this much? rather than if you can't give everything, you can't follow me. Why does Jesus, uh, why for Jesus does it have to be all or nothing? Why can't he be thankful and grateful for those who are prepared to give something of themselves to him? Well, there are two reasons that we can give to answer that question. Uh, one of them is right here in the continuation of our passage, and the next one is uh, from more broadly across the scriptures. The first, though, is in verses 34 and 35. Uh, you might have heard this uh, little saying of Jesus before. It also occurs in Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus talks about salt. kind of seems strange to introduce this, this point, but it makes complete sense. Jesus says salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It's thrown out. Now, uh, you can read about this. In the ancient world, salt had a few functions, as it does today. Uh, it was a seasoning. So if your you know, steak was a bit bland, you'd put some salt on it, and that would lift the flavour. 
Uh, it was a, a preservative, much as we still use it today, to uh, put things in a brine and preserve them so that the, the bugs can't eat it because they can't live in salt. Uh, it also served as a fertiliser to add salt to soils that didn't have enough salt content in them. I don't know enough about that, but perhaps some gardeners do. The point, though, isn't really what the salt might be used for. The point here is that salt is useful. It has a function. It's for something. That is, nobody goes and buys a whole lot of salt just to decorate their house. It's not there just to look pretty. It has a purpose. And its purpose is contingent on it bearing its true nature. Salt's purpose is found in its saltiness. And if it loses that saltiness, it's not good for any purpose. So what do you do? You chuck it out. You chuck it away. And Jesus is using this to demonstrate that his followers also have a purpose. And if they're not fulfilling their purpose, then then they're essentially useless to his project, to what he's doing in the world. The purpose that Jesus has for his followers, and we learn this through other parts of the scriptures, and we actually learn it from Matthew's gospel where Jesus talks, uses this same um, this same illustration to explain that we are to be salt and light in the world. Jesus' people are to make an impact in the world. The Apostle Paul will put it this way. He'll say we are to be ambassadors for Christ. And you see, you can only be someone's ambassador if you are fully committed to them. Imagine a king who has an ambassador and he sends them off on an embassy to a foreign country and uh, they stay there and attend the court of that country, but they don't actually really have their king's interests at heart. At the end of the day, they find they're easily swayed by other things such that they don't represent represent their king, they don't stand for him, they don't speak for him, they don't have the impact that he wants them to have as his ambassador in that foreign place. That person is effectively no ambassador at all. They're like salt. That's no salt at all. They're useless for that to which they have been called and should be tossed aside. And so it is with Jesus' followers. You see, one thing Jesus is doing is not just gathering people around him, but he's calling people, his people, to go out in the world and represent him, to be salt and light. And you can only go out into the world and represent him if you are 100% committed to him. Otherwise, you really won't represent him very well at all. And he doesn't want that. Uh, Interesting to ponder if you are not a Christian believer, by the way. You might be someone who's here just kind of checking out what the Christian faith is all about. And you might have heard many, many good reasons to follow Jesus. And there are many good reasons to follow Jesus. But one of the reasons to follow Jesus is because that he's looking for you to be his representative. And that's a good thing to know. If you're going to follow Jesus, he's calling you to be his representative to others as well. So that's the first reason why Jesus says he wants this full-on boots-and-all commitment to him. Because we are to be his salt, his light, his ambassadors in the world, and we can only do that if we really, truly want to represent him in his fullness and in all that he stands for. Uh, The second reason, though, is one, as I said, we'll draw from our broader knowledge of the Bible. And it's helpful to come at by thinking of the analogy of a marriage, a marriage between two people, 
You see, what a marriage is, is a full-on relationship between two individuals who are deeply committed to each other in every way. Uh, This language is, of course, used in a couple of places in the New Testament of Jesus and his people. Uh, It's like a a bridegroom uh, and the church as the bride. And you see, a marriage won't work or will be really a terrible marriage if either party is only semi-committed. If, if either party is I mean, kind of half-heartedly committed to the marriage and has eyes to other relationships as well, then the marriage will be terrible. Not only will it be bad, it's, it's not something that you'd, you'd even want to be part of. It's the last thing you'd want to be involved with. Uh, can you imagine organising a marriage like this or planning a marriage like this? You know, you're, you might, you're single, you go up to someone uh, and you say, look, uh, I think we should get married even though I'm not particularly that much into you. Sounds fabulous. I think we should get married even though I'll probably keep flirting with other people. Yeah, that sounds great. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, we are entering into a deep and intimate and very close relationship. And I want your full commitment to me in that relationship not one that gets distracted by other things or prioritises other things over this relationship. Again, you think about the politician image. Politicians don't want that kind of relationship with you. Uh, They want your vote. They may do good things for you as your representative, uh, but at the end of the day, they're not asking you to live life with them and to give your whole to them and to be with them uh, in every part of every day. But that is what Jesus wants. A fully committed, great, deep, two-way, all-in relationship. And that's really helpful for us to think about as well. Because not only does it help us realise why Jesus calls us to such a serious and unswerving discipleship, but it also shows us that it's a two-way relationship and that he is similarly committed to those who follow him. It's very interesting in verse 27, isn't it, just going back up there, where we read Jesus saying, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I imagine when the followers of Jesus heard that at that time, that might not have made a lot of sense to them. Oh, what on earth does that mean, carry a cross and follow? But if they did continue to follow Jesus... And they did arrive with him, as we'll see in a a few chapters, in chapter 19, at Jerusalem, where he ended up giving his life. They would know exactly what it meant. That is, this is what Jesus did for them. He carried the timbers of a cross to the edge of the town where he would be hoisted up and crucified, giving his life for them. So when Jesus calls his followers to be wholeheartedly committed to them, to him, to carry their cross, he's not saying anything less than what he does for them. And what, as we see, the story of Jesus unfolds, he does in the weeks ahead. The benefits as well of following Jesus are immeasurable. You see, When Jesus carried his cross for his disciples, 
when he was hoisted up and gave his life, it wasn't just as a good example, it wasn't just to kind of make a political point. In that, Jesus won for those who are committed to him forgiveness of everything they have ever done wrong. He won for them reconciliation with God the Father, something that all of us desperately need but cannot do for ourselves. He won for them, after his death, a resurrection into a new life that's immortal and imperishable and eternal, something we could never win for ourselves, but we win as people who follow Jesus into resurrection life if we follow him with all we've got. You see, here's the point. Those who give their all for Jesus, for following Jesus, to being his disciples and putting him first, those people are not shortchanged by Jesus. They are actually blessed beyond what they can possibly imagine and beyond any cost they might have to pay, even to the cost of their own life. Ultimately, they gain infinitely more than they sacrifice. It's good to know as well, isn't it, that uh, this relationship goes both ways. Uh, We are to be fully committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and he is fully committed to us. But the great thing in that is we know when we think about ourselves, even those of us who have said, okay, I am a disciple of Christ, I will give up everything for him. I will always put him first. I'll always make sure that he has priority over everything. We know that even having said that and committed that in our hearts, sometimes we fail Sometimes we fall short, sometimes we stumble, sometimes we don't get it right. But on the other side, Jesus who has committed to us never failed, never fell short, never got it wrong. And so we don't need to judge the relationship by our faithfulness in it or our ability to get it right all the time, but we cling on tight knowing that he does and he has not failed us in what he's won for us through his death on the cross and his resurrection. So we have security in this, even if we look at ourselves and know much as we strive and commit to the bar, occasionally we don't make it either. Ultimately, what Jesus is calling his disciples here to here is something that is very, very costly, but actually rightly driven by a form of self-interest. Driven by a form of self-interest. That self-interest that says, though the cost is high, though I need to give my all to the Lord to follow him, the cost he paid for me was higher. And the the benefits I gain from this are more, are greater. What he has won for me is more than anything I could ever give to him. And he gives it to me freely and graciously and as a gift of his deep, deep commitment to us. So we follow Jesus not simply out of a sense of duty, not simply because uh, we have to because he set the bar high, but because the rewards are immeasurable, the benefits are great, the hope is secure, the gift that he gives to us for his part is completely invaluable and something that none of us would ever want to miss out on. Let's give thanks to him.
Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much that you are committed to us and that you don't call us to less than what you do for us. You don't look to us to give up more than you would give up. And we thank you that no matter what we give up, we gain more from you, from your sacrifice, from your obedience, from your death, your resurrection. And we pray, our Lord, that you would please keep us faithful to you as you have been faithful to us. And we pray that we would follow you, not begrudgingly, not uh, as though it's an effort and tedious and a drain, but rejoicingly and excitedly knowing that we belong to you and we inherit all the goodness that you have for us. And there's nothing that we would rather live for. Please secure these truths in our heart by your spirit for your glory. Amen.